Beloved congregation of the Lord, read again with me from 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Well, congregation, we've been working through this book of First Peter, and we took a break to consider some other things, but now we are back considering verse 20. And coming as it does in a section of the word of God that is setting forth the importance of holiness in all manner of conversation or life, we ought to remind ourselves why it is we're taking such care to consider everything in this portion of the word of God. Of course, everything that God says is important in one way, but this portion of the scriptures is directed towards the holiness of the church. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ desires not only to snatch sinners out of that uh, terrible fate of eternal destruction in hell. His desire is to present his church as a holy people, to make us those who are conformed unto the will of God and obedient unto his Law, And so it is that the heart of every Christian is also desiring this for more holiness. Show me the one who does not desire holiness, who does not desire greater conformity unto Christ. I will show you someone who is no Christian at all. But here we have the heart of Christ, the, the sanctification and holiness of the church. And the means by which the Lord Jesus would make his people holy is certainly through the preaching of the gospel. Not to the exclusion of the commandments of the law, but certainly you must say this. The one who desires holiness, who does not occupy himself with the great truths of the gospel, is bound to find that it is a futile thing. There is no strength in the heart of fallen men or women to make themselves holy, except they occupy themselves with the gospel, except the great truths revealed here about Christ, his person and work and salvation, are that which we fasten onto with faith, that which our minds are filled with, that which our, our hearts feed upon, if that is not the case, we will be stuck in the old patterns of sin. A Christian who desires holiness must focus upon the gospel, not only a part of it, but all the different facets of it. Like a beautiful diamond, you turn it over and you see a different glorious aspect as the light shines through it. And perhaps the reason why there's so much unholiness and ungodliness in the church is that we don't take heed to the full counsel of God. We don't consider uh, all of the glorious aspects of the gospel. But Peter would not have that for us. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, this first chapter is filled with all the different dimensions of gospel truth. 
and here directed towards our holiness. We considered previously the fact of the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish there in verse 19. Apart from a right understanding of Christ dying as a substitute upon the cross, there can be no understanding of the gospel. Surely we all recognize that Christ, who is crucified, is that which every sinner must delight in and understand and be grounded in. We stay at the foot of the cross no matter where we may be reading in Scripture, no matter where we may be in the Christian life, it is cross-centered. But perhaps this following verse we are considering this afternoon is more neglected even among the Reformed churches. This eternal aspect of the gospel which reaches back into eternity. It is this which I wish to unfold for you this afternoon. And my prayer is that the Spirit of the Lord would indeed captivate our minds, but not just our minds, but our hearts as well, seeing how the gospel fuels greater holiness. And so my theme simply for this afternoon is Christ foreknown. Christ foreknown. We will see him foreknown by God, foreknown as mediator. And in the third place, what this means for you. Foreknown by God, foreknown as mediator, and what this means for you. Perhaps someone who's been following along would ask, why do I say foreknown? Because the King James very clearly says, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Well, I'm not prone to criticize the King James Bible. It's a It's a fine translation and indeed, for the most part, very literal in what it is rendering. But there are a few places where the translators, rather than giving you a literal translation, would do what is perhaps a bit more common in modern translations, and that is give you an interpretation of what it means. The word uh, that is translated here for no, foreordained, rather, uh, is simply the Greek word prognosko, and that's simply the word before and known. So it's very clear. It's rightly translated for known, and certainly modern translations would, would render that as well. But as I hope we'll see, it's not very far from the meaning and sense which Peter is wishing to communicate. But in order to stick to a right um, order of things. First, we should begin with with what is actually said. What Peter saying under the inspiration of the Spirit is that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown. Foreknown, you see, has its reference to God here. God foreknew Christ before the foundation of the world. And immediately you see how it sets forth the power and the majesty of God. It's talking about the world, the creation, as though it were a great building, as though it had a foundation. And you know that the foundation of the building is laid when it begins to exist. And so the point here is that Christ is known before 
the world existed, before there was creation, before God created out of nothing, speaking this universe into into existence. That is the sense here. And so immediately we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean that God foreknows something? I think if we want to rightly understand this verse, we ought to nail down exactly what the foreknowledge of God concerns. And at this point, we see how the Reformed faith, which we confess, is at odds with how a great many evangelicals would understand this term. Certainly, we're united with those who would confess other Reformed confessions, like the Westminster Standards, or some other confessions, like the 1689 London Baptist Confession. But the great number of evangelical churches would want to say that God's foreknowledge is quite a bit like yours and mine. And so they may point to, for example, that Peter uses this word in reference to the foreknowledge of human beings in Second Peter Uh, That is the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, verse 17. There, as the epistle is drawing to a close, Peter says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know those things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So an ordinary use of the word. You knew these things before I told you them, and so therefore put them into practice. A very simple Use of the word. And of course, our knowledge is not that remarkable to think about. One thing follows another, and we we take things in. We we have a sort of passive way of knowing things. People share them with us, or we observe them in the world. And so there is a sense in which we can know things before they happen. We can infer based on probabilities that if we drop something on the ground, well, that's going to fall down. It's not going to rise up onto the ceiling. And so that is a sort of knowledge which, based on probability and experience and observation, may be proper in its own place. And so how is it that God foreknows things in time? Is that the way it works? Does does God observe and take things in the way we sit back and and take things in? Recently I was doing some studies at the Tim Hortons uh, down the road here, and a man stopped and saw my Bible, saw my, my books, and began to have a conversation and in the course of our discussion, it became very clear that he strongly objects to reform doctrine and, and really put his uh, foot down on this principle, which is that God is in time. God is in time, and God, he changes. He, he doesn't know the future for certain. He knows it's sort of based upon probability and based on changing circumstances and, and was very intent on sharing this as... Uh, an important principle for how we understand things. And so that would be uh, one way in which you could take this foreknowledge. But is that biblical? Is that consistent with what Peter is saying here? Well, right from the outset, we ought to recognize that the mind of God is completely unlike our own. 
It is not a mind that can be passive in any respect, for God is the creator and all things depend upon him. And so we ought to press further and ask ourselves, how is it that foreknowledge here is understood? What would you turn with me to investigate this further into the 8th chapter of Romans? Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Familiar passage to all of us, I trust. That 30th verse in particular is cited by the Puritan William Perkins as that golden chain of redemption for everything the Lord Jesus does for us by way of justifying us by way of ultimately glorifying us. It's all linked in this glorious chain that stretches back unto the sovereign working of God. And one of those links in that chain, you see, is predestination. Whomever he did predestinate, then he also called, and so on. And he uses that word uh, previously in verse 29, doesn't he? Those whom, whom he did foreknow, progonesco, as, as Peter uses it, he also did predestinate. Now, here's a different word. It's, it's the word pro-orozo. So the idea there is uh, that whereas knowing beforehand is foreknowledge, now we have determining beforehand. The former would refer to the mind, the knowledge, the other referring to the will, that which chooses and determines and sets in place a particular plan, both ascribed to God and linked together in this this clear principle Why is it that all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose? Because not only does God know everything, but everything is subordinated unto his own will. And all things indeed are in his control. He is the all-knowing one and the all-powerful one. And so we may say that he knows what comes to pass because he purposes to bring it to pass. He chooses to bring it to pass. And this highlighted in the principle in the area of salvation. Not bringing about the salvation of his people. I think what the Puritan William Ames, one of my favorite Puritans, writes in this um, in this connection will be very helpful for us understanding what is the foreknowledge of God. This is what he says in his systematic theology. Quote, it is an act of the divine will towards a certain object 
which it determines to bring to a certain end by certain means. So that's his definition of predestination. God determines to bring a person to heaven. And so he appoints the means of bringing that person to heaven. Their calling, their justification, their ultimate glorification. God determines to bring that about. He goes on, as this decree is in the mind of God, it presupposes an act of the will. Um, and for this reason is called foreknowledge. Thus, foreknowledge sometimes means the same as predestination. So the idea here is that the will, it does ordain, and the mind, it foreknows. And it is all comprehended as one thing for God's predestination. God knows what he will bring to pass, because he is determined to make it so. So it is that Paul, to stay in the book of Romans, uses this uh, word for new or for no in specific reference to predestination. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 2, which we considered recently when we considered Romans 11, but let's refer to there again. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, this, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So there it is. For God to foreknow his people, well, that is set forth as the entire work of predestination. For the people he knows he will save, as his chosen ones, as his precious elect people, they can certainly count on this. He will, pers- he will preserve them. They will not bow the knee to Baal. They will not give in to idolatry. They will not succumb unto the spirit of the age. Why? Because God has foreknown them. He has purposed to save them. And so we see the foreknowledge of God used as predestination. And really, we could have stayed even within this epistle of 1 Peter itself in that first chapter, which begins uh, in verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What owes our election, our being chosen unto salvation in Jesus Christ? Well, it owes to this. God has foreknown whom he would save. And so it is. There is this principle of predestination. 
Let us not despise this truth, congregation. When I spoke to this man in the coffee shop and tried to help him understand, you go to this verse, you go to that argument, and, and what it comes down to, and I told him this, I said it in love, the problem is one of your own heart. You think that this doctrine is offensive, you think this doctrine is frightening because you are at odds with God. You cannot allow God to be utterly sovereign over what happens to you. You cannot allow him to be the one who ultimately chooses who goes to heaven and who is passed over because you do not have peace with God. To truly have God upon his throne, to allow God to be God in all his majesty, and all his almighty glory, and all of his perfect wisdom, strength, and splendor. It is to truly humble ourselves unto the dust. Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Let this fill our hearts with wonder, congregation. The God of creation and the God of salvation is a God of almighty power over all things, not least of which our own salvation. Should God have left this, of all things, the object of his heart's desire, the salvation of souls, to mere chance, to the mere will of man, to anything else other than his own good pleasure and his own foreknowledge of that pleasure from eternity past, God forbid This ought not to be something we despise or hide away in a corner. No, let it be something that we set forth as a glorious truth for the edification of his people and for the glory of our triune God. Well, we've seen Christ foreknown by God, but I wish to see this in the second place. Christ foreknown as mediator. And if the first point set forth what we mean by foreknowledge, that it is really Ultimately, exactly as the King James renders it, a synonym for foreordination or predestination. Then we ought, in the second place, to consider what it means for Christ himself to be foreknown. If we understand what that means in reference to the people of God, what does it mean for Christ? Well, some proposals might come to your mind and you might think, well, of course, Christ is the Son of God. As the Son of God, he was equal to the Father. He is eternal with the Father. As John says in the first chapter of his gospel, eternally in the bosom of his Father. And so you might say, in that sense, he is foreknown. But I think the right way to understand this is not of Christ as he is the eternal Son of God, but as he is the incarnate mediator. You see how it is set forth here in this verse, who verily was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was manifest in these last times for you. This is the way in which Christ manifested himself was as the incarnate God-man, as the one who came as a substitute for sinners to die in their place and ultimately to reconcile them unto a just God. Christ came as the mediator, the mediator to accomplish the salvation of sinners. It was in the sense that he was foreknown from eternity past. In the plan and in the purpose and in the decree of God, everything about Jesus Christ was planned out in meticulous detail. And you know this surely, even if you read the prophecies recorded centuries before he was born, that he was to be born in a town called Bethlehem, that he was to be born of a virgin, that he was to ride on a donkey, that he was to heal the blind and to be a great prophet and a great priest and a great king, that he was to be the light of the world. All these different things set forth about the Lord Jesus Christ and all of their intricate details. Read Isaiah 53, read Psalm 22, read about how those prophets appeared to be at the very foot of the cross, seeing him crushed for our iniquities, taking the stripes of his people. And surely you must know that it was all foreordained, all foreknown, all predestinated. Everything Christ ever did was planned out. And that, not for his own sake, merely, surely for his own glory, but also for the salvation of sinners. The same thought that Peter expresses used elsewhere, especially looking for those words before the foundation of the world. Consider, for example, Titus chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now here you see how a right way to understand predestination is. The one chosen unto eternal life is is not chosen apart from Christ or separated from this choosing of Christ as mediator. But as the apostle says, we are chosen in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Chosen from that mass of humanity, made to differ by nothing but the free choice of an electing God. And everything about the salvation which we would receive was to be purchased by Christ, realized through the application of Christ, all to the glory of Christ, 
not apart from Christ, but intimately connected. These two things, Christ chosen as the head of his elect church and all believers chosen in him to be conformed unto the Son of God. Jesus himself uses similar language. John chapter 17, verse 24, where he prays that glorious high priestly prayer and listen unto the heart of our Savior as he reflects upon these eternal truths. John 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Christ speaks here of a people given unto him, separated to be his precious possession. The language of this and other passages often referred to as the covenant of redemption. The eternal covenant wherein a people is promised unto Christ by the Father in which Christ promises to be their mediator and to bring about all of their salvation. That is what is spoken of here. This is Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, not just for any purpose, but to be the mediator of his elect people. I think that this is most important. If we would rightly understand the significance of the doctrine of election. What I've observed over the years is that there is less and less talk about election, even among the Reformed churches that confess it in their creeds. And there is more and more the language of the gospel without this truth buttressing it and shaping it in a biblical shape that is rightly calculated for the glory of God and the comfort of his people and their conformity unto Christ. I think that perhaps one thing that would check this is the biblical language that speaks of the foreknowledge of Christ and the foreknowledge of the elect church in Christ in the language of the Lamb's book of life. You understand this language scattered throughout the Bible. What a vivid picture, exactly calculated to make an imprint on your mind. You, a Christian, you, a believer, have your name written down in this eternal decree of salvation. Listen to some references to this. Revelation 13, verse 8, that terrible prophecy of the great number of people who receive the mark of the beast. And what does it say in Revelation 13, verse 8? And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him that is worship the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. What is the reason why there are some who will not worship the beast, the anti-Christ system? Well, it's because they were known by Christ before the foundation of the world, elected unto salvation. 
Later on in that same book, Revelation 21, verse 27, and there, speaking of that heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal new heavens and new earth, and there in Revelation 21, verse 27, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is owed this reality that it is only the holy and not the defiled who will enter into heaven? Well, it is ultimately this. There is a number of people that have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. They are set apart unto eternal salvation. And so they will be justified. They will be sanctified. They will ultimately be glorified. And all owing to the free good pleasure of Almighty God. Not only a speculative truth, but very practical. Very practical. The Christian, we should say boldly, his, his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says this almost as a side comment. He says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. What binds together all true Christians in the common labor of the gospel, sharing the gospel unto sinners, entering into the great work of the church. Well, it is this. They have this common identity in Christ, and it all stretches back into eternity past, when all of their names, before chosen by their own parents, before even known by themselves, or by any, before anyone even dreamed that they would exist, God knew every single Christian and recorded their names there. There you have it, a very practical lesson for each one of us. Let us not hide this doctrine away. Let us not see it as something that doesn't have practical benefit to you. If you are a Christian, you are chosen by God. This is what the gospel leads you to. What is it that our, our verse says here? Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. For you. Yes, we could say he was manifested for sinners. Yes, we could say he was manifested for the world. Yes, we could say many things. But this Christian, we must say he was manifested for you. For you personally, not for any other purpose, but to gather his elect people. Not for any other purpose, but to actually accomplish that which was purposed for him before the foundation of the world. It was for this reason he was born of the Virgin Mary. For this reason he suffered under Pontius Pilate. For this reason he was crucified and lifted up. Rejected from heaven above and earth below. Why he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was for you, Christian, for you personally. Christ would have you as his own. He would have you behold his glory. He would have you in that heavenly Jerusalem. 
And so it is that Christ did not die in vain. He did not come in vain. He is not manifested through the preaching of the gospel in vain. Christ has his people. Christ wills their salvation. And Christ will not allow even one of them to fall out of his hand. And so we see Christ foreknown by God. Christ foreknown as mediator. And What should we leave with? Well, surely this third point. What this means for you. What this means for you. I'm sure it means something for each and every one of us. I think um, Charles Spurgeon said that if he could know who were among the elect, he would be turning, and it was written, for example, on the backs of their necks, he would turn up shirt collars in order to to know exactly who they are. Of course, we cannot do that. We don't have access to that book of life. We cannot look at the names there. What we have, rather, is the preaching of the gospel, which is preached indiscriminately before every creature. And the terms of it are set forth in such glorious ways. Christ was crucified. He was crucified to save. And whosoever believes upon him will indeed not be put to shame. They will be saved, and they'll be saved not because of anything in them, but only for the glory of God who has chosen them unto eternal life and given them faith by his Holy Spirit and will have them forever with him in eternity. It's a gospel that is centered upon God, and so for that reason we must discern it rightly. Each and every one of us must ask ourselves, what does this mean for me? Well, surely we ought to say this. What a terrifying doctrine to the one who is rejecting the gospel. A terrifying doctrine to the one who is rejecting the gospel. Maybe you noticed that when we read through Article 16 of our Canons of Dord, and it It sets forth, if you look at that whole first head of doctrine, you'll see how it lays out all the biblical case for for election and predestination and how it refutes every argument to the contrary. But then in Article 16, on page 100, it has that very clear, practical exhortation. Is such a doctrine designed to bring discomfort and fear to the Christian who lacks assurance. Well, it says not at all. Not at all. Those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ, an assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, an earnest endeavor after filial, that is, childlike obedience, and glorifying God through Christ, efficaciously wrought in them, and do nevertheless persist in the use of means, which God hath appointed for working these graces in us, ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, that is, the mention that some are not elect, nor to rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means, and with ardent desires, devoutly and humbly, to wait for a season of richer grace. Are you trembling believer who desire that full assurance of your election? Or are you to be so paralyzed with fear 
that you will have no talk of this doctrine. No, dear one. No, not at all. Persist, our fathers told us. The doctrine is set forth for our encouragement. For our encouragement. What is it that Christ Jesus said? He said in um, Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Christ would have this doctrine lift up your spirits unto heaven upon your rightly receiving. And if you cannot receive it now, persevere in prayer. Persevere in the reading of the scripture. Persevere in the listening to preaching. Find at last upon that richer season of grace that it is for you. But no, no, it's not terrifying for you. But is it terrifying for this other group that's mentioned? Much less cause have they to be terrified by the doctrine of reprobation, who though they seriously desire to be turned to God, to please Him only, and to be delivered from the body of death, cannot yet reach that measure of holiness and faith to which they aspire, since a merciful God has promised that He will not quench the smoking flax, nor break the bruised reed. Oh no, these things, they are surely marks of the Lord's Spirit at work, are they not? To seriously desire to be turned to God, to seriously desire to please God only. How could anyone use the doctrine of predestination to bring discouragement unto such as these? Surely the heart of God is most tender and compassionate to these. But what does it say should bring terror? Who ought to be terrified at the doctrine of election? Well, this is what it says. This doctrine is justly terrible to those who regardless of God and of the Savior Jesus Christ have wholly given themselves up to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh so long as they are not seriously converted to God. And so the one who is living in sin and the one who is living in a way flatly contradictory to the scriptures, they ought to take no comfort from this doctrine of election. They ought to take no comfort from the gospel. They ought to take no comfort whatsoever, but rather be terrified. For you have no reason to think you will go to heaven. You have no reason to think you are forgiven. You have no reason to think you are a child of God if you are tolerating known sin, if you are giving yourself to the cares and lusts of the world, if you are not all out for the honor of Christ, if you do not desire holiness, then it ought to fill you with terror and dread. It ought to make you really wonder and think, is it not the case that I bear the marks of the reprobate, those passed over, those condemned, those cast into outer darkness? Well, let this terror sink in, my friend. Let it cause you to actually wake up 
maybe for the first moment in your life and see that if it is Christ who is foreknown before the foundation of the world and all those who are to be saved are foreknown in him, then you must occupy yourself with this. How is it I can know Christ? How is it I can can know the power of his resurrection? How is it that I can cleave unto him? For if you will not have him, you can certainly not have heaven. So that, I say, should also direct us concerning who ought to be terrified of this doctrine. But what of those who are believers in Christ? What of those who know in whom they have believed and are persuaded that he is able to keep that which you have committed unto him against that day? Well, for you, dear one, for you who have believed upon Jesus Christ, let this increase your stability. No matter what temptations, no matter what trials may lie ahead, no matter if there even be betrayals from those nearest and dearest, know this, that Christ's electing love will hold you firm. If you have fled unto Jesus Christ and believed upon him, let this be your comfort. The same wisdom which foreordained all things and the same power which ordains all things and the same all-merciful love which sent forth Christ into the world, that is what holds you firm. The very God of our salvation will not let you go. I thought about this as as I reflected upon a verse from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And there he's talking about all these people who have departed from the faith, all those people have rejected Christ. And I thought about those who I used to have a hope for in my past, and I thought, how is it that these things did not bring discouragement to you as well, Paul? And this is what he says in verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and that everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Do you see others departing from the faith? Do you see others who are turning their backs upon Christ? Do not think for a moment that it has any thing to do with God and his lack of power to save. Do not think that it means you as well could be lost to have fled unto Jesus Christ. No one who is sincerely believed upon Christ can be lost, for they are known of God. The Lord knows who are his. And so it is that what we occupy ourselves is rather this, that we depart from iniquity. If you would name the name of Christ, you depart from iniquity because of your election. Because you are separated unto Christ, separated from the world in that eternal decree, there can be no compromise with sin. It is flatly contradictory to your very existence, Christian. Everything you are and have been appointed to be was set forth in that eternal plan of God, and that was not separated from your holiness. It was all bound up with it. Depart from iniquity. What 
What have you to do with this world, Christian? What have you to do with the things that would lead you away to Christ? They should have no place in you because your name is written there in that Lamb's book of life and with it your holiness. So we see here, congregation, that the gospel in its full orb sense, it doesn't give any cause for complacency, no cause at all for peace with sin. It all tends towards our holiness. And so my prayer is that this would be rightly applied and that the church of Jesus Christ would issue forth in the holiness.